welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke that we've been in for a while. And we uh, are in the midst of uh, the somber but powerful accounts of Christ on Calvary. We come now to Luke chapter 23, and verses 39 to 43. This is God's wondrous word. Let us hear it. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's magnificent word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sober but also wondrous passage about two people who have an opportunity to have an encounter with Christ. There's a great story here of redemption found, a sober story of redemption lost. And in the midst of it, the greatness of our Savior shines forth. Let us not miss him, but let us see him in all of his greatness this morning as never before in the mighty saving name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, uh, Luke continues to tell the story of the greatest hours, of the greatest life, of course, ever lived. And he does it by emphasizing the people who were involved. As I mentioned over the last couple of weeks, Luke is unique among the gospel writers, and in fact, many New Testament writers, in terms of the portraits of the people in the, in the, in the accounts that he draws for us. And uh, There are portraits here that continue throughout this passage, and we have already looked at a number of them. I've titled the messages that have been in this section of Scripture, Tales from Calvary. These portraits and these people bring us insight into what God was all about. They're moving moments from a place that was a place of death and suffering, but also of God at work. The the people in Jerusalem called it Calvary or Skull Hill, Golgotha in in the Aramaic. And it was a place of death and crucifixion, but God was doing mighty things there. Now, we've already heard some of the stories from, uh, from that place. We heard the tale of Simon of Cyrene, the man who was pulled out of a crowd suddenly on a street in Jerusalem as Jesus was being led by, carrying the cross beam of his cross, and it was too much for Christ and his tortured state, and Simon pulled out of the crowd by a Roman soldier and the cross being placed on his back, and Simon, who made his way up that hill unwillingly, but who probably stayed and watched and listened 
to Jesus and watched the suffering of Christ and we believe came to Christ and became a marvelous life of faith. Simon of Cyrene, the man who stayed and was saved. Last week we saw the story of the crowd that surrounded that that cross that followed the procession all the way through the city and waited until the deed was done and Jesus was dead and the rulers that had egged them on for hours into a blind hatred of Christ and they stayed too but they stayed and slandered the Savior, the Lord Jesus, made themselves immortal in history for their mindless hatred of Christ. And today... We come to a great story, maybe the most famous of all the stories and tales from Calvary, other than that of Christ himself, and that's the the thief on the cross. There are uh, some unique things about this. There are two onlys about this story that Bible teachers have seen. The first is that Luke is the only writer that tells this story. And again, it goes back to his fascination on the human scale with, with people and And uh, he alone, out of the four gospel writers, tells us what happened in the life of the thief on the cross. So I find that confirming to what we understand about Luke. But then there's another thing. This is the only deathbed conversion story that is told in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Of all the stories, all the human encounters, this is the only one in which a person turns to the Savior at death been noted over the centuries. William Guthrie was one of the first to note it back in the late 1600s, great Bible teacher of that era. He said this, the Bible, which which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion, one that no one may despair, but only one that no one may presume. How interesting. He does point out that God saves and And there are deathbed conversions, and there's one in the Scripture right here. This is a man who was hours from death, who knew he had no escape, and who experiences conversion. But only one that you not presume. And I meet many people in my walk of life, in my line of work, if you'll call that what I do, many years in the pastorate now, who... uh, And one way or another have told me when I've appealed to them to trust Christ now... They're younger, or they're in the the height of the the years of their life of achievement or indulgence or whatever, and one way or the other, they've told me, I've got time. There are things that I still know I'm going to do in my life. I'll make peace with God when the time gets closer. I've had people tell me that outright, and I've had people live that out without a word. But it's interesting. Guthrie says, there is a story that you can hope that it's possible, but only one, so that you won't presume. And that's the human nature, to presume. I always have time to presume I can do business with God when the moment comes. But I'll tell you right now, from my life experience, don't presume that can happen for you. As we begin to look at this story and see how this man walked into the kingdom in that moment, oh, it's a great story, but don't presume that it could be yours for two reasons. Number one, how do you know you will have that chance? How can you control the years of your life and the events of your passing? How do you know how you, how you will pass? How do you know you'll have the capacity and the moment to make your peace with God? For many centuries, and until the time of, of advanced science, many, many people, I don't know if you know this, feared having a sudden death. It was the worst thing that could happen to you on the battlefield or in life. 
because people wanted to know that they had some moments to make their peace with God. It's, it's, a, it's a situation you can't control, and yet so many live in presumption over it. Here's the second reason. If, if you're presuming you'll, you'll make peace with God at the time of your choosing at the end of your life, how do you know the times will change, but you won't? Right now, the issue is before you, and you will not come to him. What makes you believe that all things will alter in the nature of who you are and that you'll be any different then? The battle will be th- the same then as it is now. That's why the Bible says today is the day of what? Salvation. Adrian Rogers, uh, with the Lord now, but a wonderful Bible teacher in my generation, taught this about deathbed conversions. He said, is deathbed repentance possible? It's possible, but it's not probable. This is a man who pastored for 50 years. It's possible, but it's not probable. The Bible records one deathbed repentance and only one. That's the one we're going to see today. The thief on the cross facing death, coming to Christ so that no one should despair, but one and only one so that no one should presume. He's quoting William Guthrie there. He goes on, I'm telling you that anytime, any place, anywhere that anybody calls on Jesus, they can be saved. Don't make, don't mistake me here, he says. But the Bible is not full of stories of people who got saved on their deathbed. Most of the people in the Bible who are saved get saved when they can. This is important. They get saved when they can. They don't wait, he writes. Today is God's word. Tomorrow is the devil's word. I think that's the great old Southern preacher's way of putting it. So don't be deceived. Pastor and author Erwin Lutzer wrote this, one minute after you slip behind the parted curtain of life, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have never known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. And that is what dawned on the mind of the thief on the cross. And that is what I am praying will dawn on your heart today if you are before me or watching me and you have yet to trust Christ. There is a special message for you today. This tale from Calvary is a tale for you to ponder. It is a tale for you to ponder if there are people in your world whom you know are postponing a faith decision and who are playing with their future. Now, this is a beautiful story of a conversion, but it's also accompanied by a somber story of what could have been because there are two thieves in the story. Let's not forget. Really, Luke gives us, he draws three characters here. There is the the thief who rebels and scorns Christ. There is the thief who softens and comes to Christ. And there is the saving Christ in the midst of it. So as Luke has drawn three characters, those will be my my, my three preaching points. Look at the passage with me. Let's take a look at the three. First of all, there is the tale of a hardened heart. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so we have the scene, three crosses on a hill. We've watched the procession gone through that story in Simon of Cyrene carrying the crossbar after the tortured and scourged Christ. 
We've seen them arrive at the top of Calvary, Latin Calvarium, the place of the skull, and the the crosses have now been raised. Then we've also seen the beginning hours, perhaps, of the torment of Christ on the cross, where the crowd rose to its height of hatred and mocked him and scorned him, led on by the rulers who circled the bottom of the cross and dared Jesus, if, if he was the Son of God, to come down, work just one more miracle, and they might believe. And so they've all distinguished themselves but it's as if the the crowd and the rulers are now in Luke's mind or in his narrative kind of moving away from the center of the picture perhaps they've quieted down now and a lot of their hatred has exhausted their voices the soldiers themselves who were indifferent to all of this have may have may have settled down into a little group by themselves set off from the cross caught in the boredom of just another crucifixion, waiting until it's over. And Luke Seaton seems to tighten the picture to just three figures, three crosses on the hill. Now, it's important to ponder, not just to notice, but to ponder that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. This is important. Why is this such a, a detail to understand in the Scripture? Well, one, is, one reason is that this fulfilled prophecy. It is amazing the number of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the final 24 hours of the life of Christ. A number of them. And some of them were very specific. They were extremely specific. And here, the, the, the Scripture tells us that this fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12, where the Scripture says he was numbered with the transgressors. He was going to find his death in the midst of criminals, the Scripture predicted, and that's exactly what happened. He was placed between two transgressors, and the Old Testament talks about them as unusually wicked men, and they were. The Bible here calls them criminals, verse 39. It's a Greek word that meant you were probably guilty of violence and murder. It was one of the higher levels of describing a person of lawlessness. So they weren't everyday thieves or pickpockets that got caught on a bad day, they were people who had probably taken lives on the street. They well deserved what they were getting. And those were the two that Christ was placed between. So it fulfilled prophecy, but it also seems to, if you look at this with with an eye to what happened, this may have had both a human design and a divine design. I've mentioned James Stalker, who's done a a real interesting and extensive work of meditating on these hours of Jesus and the the events of Calvary. And let me quote him for a second. He said, It is not said by whose arrangement it was that Jesus was hung between the two thieves. They were all brought up to the cross hill together. Why Jesus between the two? He says, We don't know. It's not said in the New Testament by whose arrangement it was, who made the decision. It may have been done by the order of Pilate who wished it this way to add a point to his mocking inscription above the cross of Christ. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Maybe that was Pilate's way of of showing the world the disgust he had for a king of the Jews. We don't know. That's possible. He goes on, or the arrangement may have been done by the Jewish officials that hated Jesus, that put together his false trials and drove all of this, who followed their victim up to Golgotha 
and may have persuaded the soldiers to put him in that place as an additional insult. That could have happened. The, the rulers pushing the soldiers to put him in the middle as an additional insult to Jesus. Or he writes, the soldiers might have done it on, on their own accord, simply because Jesus was obviously the most notable of their prisoners, and he was. So from the human scale, he writes, we don't know, but the likelihood is that there was malice in it. Yet there was also a divine purpose behind the wrath of man. This is him writing and pondering this. The position of Jesus between the thieves was ordained by God as well as by men. It was his right position because Jesus had been called by people long through his ministry, a friend of sinners. Remember that? It's what his enemies called him, a friend of sinners. And now by crucifying him between the thieves, they put the same idea into action. As however, that nickname has become a title of everlasting honor to us. Don't you love knowing that Jesus is a friend of sinners? I do. That's the only reason he hangs out with me. <laughs> oh, it's precious to me. They, 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 they saw it as an insult, but it's precious to me. Jesus came to the world to identify himself with sinners. Their cause was his, and he wrapped up his fate with theirs. He had lived among them, and it was fitting that he should die among them. To this day, he is in the midst of them. And the responses of the two men between whom he hung that day was a prefigurement of what has been happening every day since. Some sinners have believed on him and been saved, while others have believed not. To the one, his gospel is a savor of life unto life. To the other, it is a savor of death unto death. So it is to be until the end. And on the great day, the great day of judgment, when the whole history of this world shall be wound up, he will still be in the midst and the penitent will be on one hand and the impenitent on the other. I, I like the way he captures the arc of history there. So he looks at this in his poetic soul as he wrote this indicates that, oh, for the friend of sinners, it was the right place to be. And he was doing a work of salvation for them and for me. So Luke tightens the picture to just the three, and Christ is between these two men. And they're all three suffering incredibly. I went through the ugly description of crucifixion last week to help you understand the agonizing hours that physically Christ was now experiencing, pressing himself up on the nails and pulling himself up on the other nails to gather every breath and then collapsing into pain and suffocation over and over again. But as he drew himself off with each breath, he caught the breath and he prayed. The Bible tells us that's the very first thing that came out of his mouth once the nails were driven and the cross was, was raised. He was praying, and he was praying in an astounding way. We saw it last week. It's verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Three crosses on a hill, all close enough to be joined together in the experience. And these men, suffering incredibly, were also hearing Jesus praying astoundingly. They could not have missed it. The Bible tells us something interesting in verse 34. The Greek word is in the imperfect tense, which means that Jesus didn't just utter that prayer once. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's kind of a one-moment statement. The Bible says he prayed it over and over. That's what the imperfect tense talks about. It's an action 
he did over and over and over again. We don't know how long in that portion of time, but every time he drew himself up on the nails and caught his breath, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and held the breath as long as he could, and then descended again. And then as he pulled himself up again, you would hear it again. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And on and on this proceeds. And so they were hearing, in in my opinion, as I preached to you last week, Jesus and the Father interacting in what I call the fellowship of the plan of salvation. Jesus calling out that they need forgiveness for all that they're doing, and the Father perhaps silently affirming, Son, that's what we're all about here. You're going to taste my wrath for their sin, and soon our great plan of redeeming people will be finished. And so there was this moment that stretched into long moments of these men hearing this magnificent prayer Now note two things about how they responded. First of all, at first, the two started in bitterness to respond. As as the situation settles and they're in their agonies, verse 38.9 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, if you just read Luke's account, you would think it was just the one, but Matthew and Mark tell us it was actually in the early hours apparently, both of them. Both of the thieves were railing one side to the other against Jesus, saying the same thing, if you're the Christ, save us, mocking him. They had been caught up in the hatred of the crowd and the bitterness of the rulers, and they let their, 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 themselves go and be drawn into it. But after a certain point, they, they, they just were railing at him together. Verse 39, again, is also in the imperfect. That criminal who was hanging kept railing at him. So it was something the criminal, as he brought himself on the cross, Christ brought himself up to pray. That criminal brought himself up to rail at Jesus, to insult Jesus, to attack Jesus, to mock Jesus in his hatred. And verse 39 tells us that that's where that thief stayed. There is no indication that he ever changed the first thief. No indication that he ever stopped mocking Jesus and being bitter towards him. Even after watching Christ in all of his innocence and the the glory and the humility and the majesty in which he took all of this, even after hearing him pray over and over again and encounter his father in this magnificent way, and even perhaps after knowing something about who Jesus was, This man stays in his bitterness. Now, over the decades that I've pastored people, uh, I have been involved in many deathbed encounters. I have been called to many bedsides, many hospital rooms, many hospice rooms by family members who have asked me to make one more attempt to bring their dying loved one to Christ. So I've been called into a time where where, where I met people just like this criminal. This criminal knew he was hours from death. Nobody got off the cross alive, of course. 
And I've been brought into into situations where people knew they were hours or days from death, and the family has asked me to come and make one final appeal. And many times I've come, and many times I've been turned away. Many times I've seen people, when they know who I am and when I begin to talk about what they need to know about facing death through Christ, the faces turn and move away from me and turn into the pillow or move to the other side of the bed or the eyes tighten and the chin tightens and they do not want me there. I've even had on occasion other people look right at me and tell me I'm not interested. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't believe in God and I'm going to face this on my own. Many times. Knowing where they were heading, knowing who I had come to tell them about. And so there is that defiance. Some people stay in their defiance like this man did. You see, you can't trust that though the times may change, your heart will change. If you're not willing to come to Christ today, Why do you suppose you'd be willing on that day? But here's the second thing I notice about this first man and this first part of the passage. Though at first the two started together in their bitterness and they both railed against Jesus, at length only one stayed in bitterness. Look at the text, verse 40, but the other rebuked him. Something changed. They both began to mock Jesus, but over the hours in the beginning, something changed in the heart of one of the two, but the other rebuked him. And here we move from the hardened heart to a heart that begins to soften. And we go from the tale of a hardened heart, which is a sad one, to the tale of a softened heart. Here we get to the beauty of God's dealing with a soul. Three men on a cross, three, three crosses on a hill, rather. Two sinners in the midst of one Savior. Two sinners, same situation, same Savior, hearing the same words, seeing the same life, facing the same death. One hardened, but one changing. You, you say, how, how is it possible to know? And how do you explain all the mystery of this, the gospel with its effect on people in its own way? And How do you control how people respond? And of course, I say I cannot. Scripture says salvation is of the Lord. I come bearing the message and I realize that a hot hot and sun beating down can simply heat up a hard rock. At the same time, it can soften a piece of wax. (laughs) Here we see a softening. How do you explain this? Well, basically, I can simply say this is a man who undergoes a spiritual awakening. I'll leave it at that. There is a great mystery to how God works in all of this and what what is all at at play here. Thomas Hooker, a, a former Puritan of the past, a Bible teacher, again from the 1700s, I think, late 1600s. 
He simply said, the almighty power of God and the conversion of a sinner is the most mysterious of all the works of God. So I'm not going to hear, be here and, and uh, take a, a theological monocle to this and focus on it. I'm just going to tell you what I see. It's a beautiful spiritual awakening. And by the way, it happens to someone who most people would say was pretty much the worst of sinners and pretty much too far gone to turn to Christ. People would look at that. Maybe there was a grieving mother near the cross who was not grieving for Jesus. She was grieving for this nameless thief. He had a family. He had a history. Maybe his own mother was in the crowd weeping over where his, her son ended and thinking, oh, if I could have only have reached him. Well, I'll tell you what, the Lord reaches him. I draw great encouragement from this. I've mentioned to you many times, I've asked you the question. The question is this, do you know anybody who is too far gone for God to reach? And the answer is, I don't. It's a beautiful example of it here. This is a pattern of the truly turning heart, a man going through spiritual awakening. And I, I simply see four things happen here that really define how anyone turns to Christ. First, he began to fear facing God. Verse 40. He rebukes the other man as a realization sinks into his mind and his, his soul saying, do you not fear God? That's the issue that begins or ends every spiritual conversation. You have to begin by understanding God exists. He is a perfect, holy, and just God. And that when death brings the parting of the curtain, you will face him. And over the hours, the reality of what was happening sinks into this second heart. And he's saying, do you not fear God? And his implication is, I have begun to fear God. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, not only are you guilty and I'm guilty, we're, in, we're, we're undergoing capital punishment, but in hours this condemnation will result in us dying. We are going to face God. Do you not fear him? He had contemplated all of this and, and in the midst of this, don't forget, he is just a few yards away from the magnificent prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This Jesus in perfect engagement with his eternal father. Over the life of this man, this man is hearing over and over again, this perfect man praying and, and bringing out in his prayer the great an urgent need of anyone facing God as death curtain parts, and that is forgiveness. Don't face God unforgiven. So he began to fear facing God. He realized God exists. I've lived a sinful life. I'm soon going to die, and I'm not ready to face him. So that is the beginning point. This is also simple, isn't it? It's all so clear. It's what you've appealed to so many lives about. It's what the Bible says the ultimate conversation is. 
It doesn't matter how far you go in life. In in the great analysis of your existence and your eternal future, it comes down to these four things. You've got to begin to understand them, and you need to move into them. The first thing you need to do is you need to begin fear-facing God. That's where it begins or ends for you. I've had people end the conversation there. Looked right at me. I don't believe in God. I'm not going to believe in God. I have no interest in what you're saying. And at that point... The conversation ends. Here, the softening goes further to the second thing. Not only did he begin to fear facing God, secondly, he began to realize his own sin. That's verse 41. And we, he's calling out to this thief, the other cross on the other side of Jesus. We indeed are suffering this sentence of condemnation justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's saying... We are nailed to these crosses for good reason. Perhaps his mind had gone back over the faces of his victims. The damage he'd done, as the song says. The moments when he made choices, the viciousness of how he'd acted. And he realized that when he was brought to trial and he was convicted, there was plenty of evidence and He realized he was nailed to that cross by human courts for a good reason. And perhaps rolling around in his mind is this. If this is what mankind does to me and I deserve it, what will I receive from an infinitely holy and eternal God? Man can spend a few hours cruelly taking my life. But God is infinitely more holy, and he is an eternal person. I have an eternal offense against him. And whatever happens with me and him will be eternal by definition. He begins to realize his own sin. And we, indeed, justly. My Bible tells me that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. My Bible tells me that if I'm honest with a person and I share the gospel with them, I must begin with the fact that God exists and you will eternally face him and he is infinitely perfect and holy. He has set the rules of his universe and you and I both know we are in constant violation of his purity and holiness and we must answer for that. Romans chapter 1. Whenever you share the gospel, don't begin with the features and benefits of what Jesus will do in their life. Begin with the awestruck principle that they will face a holy God and their lives are out of fellowship with him. Don't deny a person the sting of the law that they need to have before they taste the sweetness of grace. Don't do it. The Spirit of God is working to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Are you in step with the Spirit of God and how you're sharing Christ with people? I I could go on in an entirely other message about that. But the gospel is so watered down today, so confused today, so user-friendly today, so adjusted for effect today, so removed of things that offend today, that there is no sting of the law in it. You cannot even understand that the first two things you've got to know are that you will fear, you, you need to fear facing an eternal God and you need to realize your own sin and that you have no hope of answering that in your own life. Here's the third thing. 
not only did he begin to fear facing God and then begin to realize his own sin, thirdly, he began to understand the innocence of Jesus. Look at the end of verse 41. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're suffering justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man. It's as if he's focusing on Jesus as though he's never met anyone like him, and he had never met anyone like Jesus. Over these hours, he began to understand that he was watching a man he'd never seen the likes of before. This man is a special man. Perhaps the Spirit of God invading his mind, turning his heart, illuminating his understanding, and he sees the wonder of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. It, he, he's not just talking about the fact that we're, we're rank criminals. This is just an everyday guy, you know. He's, we should really suffer this. He's not guilty of stuff at the level that we are. No, he says, what? Nothing wrong. Interesting word the Spirit of God chose to use in the Greek language in this, this text. It's a tapas, and it had an uh, alpha privative in the front of it. It means without, and place is the second word. The Greek experts tell me that atapas meant nothing out of place. He had, he had done nothing improper. He had done nothing injurious, the Greek analysis goes on. He had done nothing wicked. He had done nothing unbecoming. He had done nothing amiss or out of place with what God had wanted in his life. Think about that. The Bible tells us that Jesus was without sin. The Bible says he was always pleasing to his father. Jesus himself said, I do nothing that is not pleasing to the father. There was not one footfall in his life that was amiss from the plan and the pleasure of the father. He is the perfect man. Nothing amiss, not a footfall out of place. Greek scholar here says it meant nothing unrighteous. And that's exactly who I needed to take my place on that cross in the middle. Because the Bible says I'm a wicked, unrighteous man. I have no hope of hauling my way into heaven. No hope of improving my wretched life to some point where a perfect God will be satisfied. Oh, I needed a perfect life to be lived for me and a perfect life to be taken for me to that cross. And the Bible says somebody who knew no sin had to become sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God. And that is what was going on. And somehow in the magnificence of how God works, I believe that was dawning into the understanding of the thief on the cross. As the hours marched, he went from railing to beginning to fear facing God after death and to beginning to realize his own sin that clearly condemn him before this perfect God. But he began to understand that he was in the presence of an innocent and perfect sacrifice. And knowing all that, here's the fourth thing. 
he began to call upon Jesus, verse 42. And he said, now he turns to Christ and his words go from this declaration in the hearing of all and this other thief. Now he prays and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, I'm telling you, that's just got to be up there with my all-time favorite prayers in the Bible. It's so simple, but it's filled with eternity. Of course, we know he would have used Christ's name, Yeshua. That's what he would have said. Yeshua, of course. Jesus was named on purpose. We know that. The angels proclaimed, you shall call him Yeshua. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. And in that hour, the the power and the majesty of who he was was all coming to its great conclusion. And this thief understood it. Don't ask me how all this compressed into his understanding. That's the Spirit's job, not mine. Oh, Yeshua, live out your name. Then he says, remember me. This is interesting. What did he mean? We don't know, but here, here are my, my ponders, my, the, my guesses after pondering the text. I, I think part of this might have been an, a request to remember me in that prayer you've been praying. You've been asking your father to forgive all those around you. Remember me in that prayer. I know I'm going to face God. I know I'm a sinful man, and I know I have no answer, but I ask that you would make that prayer real for me. Make it so that I can be forgiven. Isn't that a sinner's prayer? Isn't that what you said when you came to Jesus? Lord Jesus, whether you were six or 60, I know I'm a sinner. Make it so that I can be forgiven. That's the gospel. Notice also, he says, remember me. What does that tell us about all this? First, it it tells us that he knew that Jesus wasn't going to die, and that would have been it. Remember me in that future that you're planning. Remember me when you rise. Somehow this must have all come together. Jesus wasn't going to die and go into a hole in the ground like he thought, this Jesus is a timeless Messiah. And he's going to come back in the future like my Old Testament lessons used to teach me about the fact that there is a God who does desire to pardon us, but who cannot look sideways at our sin, but who is going to send his own son, the Messiah, who in some marvelous way will make it right for us and make it possible for us to be in God's presence. He didn't know all the details, but he knew enough. And he knew that that Messiah was actually going to come back someday in the future. Who, was, who That Messiah was going to control history. He'll be over death. And and he's going to come back and set up his kingdom right there on this earth, right in, right in Israel, right there. He knew that, that Israel would be part of a magnificent rulership of the Messiah, a golden age yet to come, Jerusalem being the center of the world and, 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 and Christ being the ruler of it all, ruling the nations. The Messiah was going to come and he wanted a part in that. So remember is a timeless word. I know you're not dying. 
I know you must be coming back somehow. I know you're timeless. Therefore, you must be the Messiah. And when you do come back, you are the king of the Jews. They're mocking you now, but I know you're going to be a returning king. Oh, King Yeshua, when you come back in your kingdom, look at the phrase, when you come into your kingdom, into what God the Father has prepared for you, who has kingdoms? Kings. So it's all just coalescing. He asked that 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 man know everything we know today from the church age about salvation. No, he didn't know everything, but he knew enough to fear facing God, to realize his own sin, to understand the innocence and the perfection and the magnificence of Jesus and to call upon Yeshua to be saved. And I believe he was. as we'll see in just a moment. Now I mentioned to you that there are, have been many times actually when I've been called to bedsides or hospice rooms to make one final appeal and I've been railed at like the first thief or silently turned away from. But there have been some times when a heart was softening. And when that person, unbeknownst to me, had begun to fear facing God and had begun to realize their own sin and had begun to understand that they needed a Savior. And when I've walked into those rooms, oh, it's been different. Sometimes, just like I was openly railed at by some people saying, get out of here. I don't believe in God. I've had on rare occasions people facing death who've called for me and said, I need to see you. I remember one time, this is years ago now, walking into a hospital room, a man I didn't know at the request of his son. I walked in. I said, I'm Pastor Joe. How can I help? man looked at me, grabbed both arms, said, I need to know how to be right with God. I said, okay, that's what I tell people about. And so I looked over him in that bed and went through the portions of the gospel that I've talked about here. And he prayed to receive Christ lying in that bed facing his fears, finding his Savior. He went on to to live several weeks after that, filled with joy, living in the Word of God, when he was able with his oxygen tank and everything else, trundling into church. And I was at his bedside as he took his last in his home. And he was... He was the Lord's. You see, many times it happens that way. Other times it's been a whispered word and affirmation as I've led people through this marvelous gospel. 
in a frightening moment. Now, some people say, well, I knew that person's life, and I don't know. I don't know about decisions like, oh, wait a minute. My Bible says that the Lord Jesus said, everyone that comes to me shall not be cast out. And don't you think at a time like that, that a person would be the most serious they'd ever been? Possibly. Don't despise those those decisions. Take them at their face value and you trust the Lord. The tale of a softened heart. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Well, don't forget, there was a third portrait Luke painted here. There's a third person, of course, the mighty Lord Jesus in the middle. Verse 43, he comes into the story. Jesus, being God, answers the prayer of the man. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If the sinner, if, if that thief's prayer was one of my most favorite prayers in the Bible, this is one of my most favorite answers. <laughs> this is what I live for and look for every day. The final figure Luke describes, of course, is our Lord. And I just find that it's beautiful that in the darkest moment of human evil that surrounded him and in his deepest physical suffering, Jesus is given the joy of what he was all about, saving sinners. (laughs) He gets that joy in the midst of that sorrow. The Father gifts him this wonderful soul. The man was probably hopeful but uncertain. Who knows if he had much strength in his prayer, oh, Jesus, remember me. Maybe he was filled with doubt and self-hate, but to that uncertain cry of the man, Jesus says three astounding things. First, he says, at the very instant after your death, (laughs) look at this, he says, today, today. This must have been filled with comfort for him because Jews, uh, as they read their Old Testament and their teachers mulled over what happens after physical death, there was some gray understanding of that. They weren't as informed as we are today. And there was the doctrine of Sheol, the place where where the spirit would go to, to await how God would deal with things in the future and the body and the grave itself. And there was an understanding that someday... Daniel 12 told, told them that they would be physically resurrected again and, 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 and that Messiah would have a kingdom and they would be raised on the last day, but there wasn't a lot of understanding about it. Well, Jesus here tells him something that Paul would put into New Testament words later. Maybe you can recite it. Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus tells him, that's going to happen to you today. No waiting, no soul sleep. By the way, no purgatory. In case you're wondering if that teaching's in the Bible, that one word blows that up. Destroys it. Other people are teaching today that God's going to take all people into a, in a waiting room and, and he's going to reason with them. And even if it takes a hundred thousand years, he'll talk you into trusting him and everybody will, will, will go into eternity saved. No, 
One word destroys all that fake theology that Rob Bell or whatever other failed pastor that teaches it thinks. Today, the very instant after your death, the curtain parts and you face God, but because you've trusted me, you'll face my Father in me. And then secondly, at this very instant after your death, at the very instant rather after your death, secondly, you will be with me. (laughs) You'll be with me. You won't be alone. You won't be standing alone before God. You'll be with me. I will be there as your advocate, but you're just going to be with me. No more broken relationship with my Father and myself and the Spirit due to sin, but you're going to enter into a perfect relationship without sin. And, And the greatest thing is you'll be with me. People say, what's heaven like? I've always felt that's really the secondary question. Really. It ought to be who's heaven like. It's being with him. Can you imagine you're going to care about the color of a street? Or the distance of the planets when you're with him? He says, the very instant after your death, today you will be with me. And thirdly, in the presence of the Father in paradise. Paradisios. That's basically another word for heaven, folks. It's found two other places in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul said he was called up to the third heaven. And in verse 4, he, he calls it paradise. Same thing. The very presence of God. Revelation 2, 7. I mean, there's the, there's the first heaven, which is atmospheric and the Bible terminology. The second heaven, the celestial. And the third heaven is the presence of God, the throne room of the Father. That's what he's saying. In Revelation, I think, chapter 2, verse 7, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And if you go back to Revelation 21 and 22, where is the tree of life? It's in heaven. It's in the very presence of the Father. So that's the great promise. And I'll tell you, beloved, I have given that assurance to a number of people at their bedsides after they've gone through the harrowing process of fearing facing God and realizing their own sin and understanding the the wonder of Jesus and calling upon his name, then I've been able to say, you know what? You don't need to be afraid anymore because my Jesus says that at the very instant after you die, you'll be with him in the presence of the Father. And I've seen the eyes brighten and felt the fingers grip and the hearts go to rest. Because that's the greatness of the gospel upon a heart that hunts him. Three crosses on a hill. 
A sobering story to begin, but a stirring one. A stirring one. To bring it all into really a point of decision for you. You think, well, I, I, this is all very stirring, Pastor, but uh, I'm kind of counting on some of my background. You see, that I've been taught that sacraments, you know, they're a big deal too, and that's what saves. I, I was christened at a certain time in my life. I was six weeks old, I think. I don't remember how it was. But I've been told that put me into the running. And I've more or less kept up with communion. Do you know that this whole passage teaches that none of that makes any difference? Do you see any sacrament in that passage? See any baptism? See a communion cup nailed to the side of the guy's cross? Others might say, you know, this, this is really moving me, but I've got to get my life together. There are certain things I've got to get control of before I... I've got to show God that I'm worthy of this. That's called good works, my friend. That's called legalism. How much time did this guy have to do any good works? You see, all of that disappears, and what those come out to are religious evasions. Say, oh, you know, actually, uh, this is pretty stirring, Pastor, but I've been listening to a guy on, online lately. He just says that really we've misunderstood the Bible for 2,000 years and that salvation's universal. Everybody will go and see God. Really? You missed the first man in the story. It's very clear. He doesn't. No. Will your heart harden? Or will it soften toward the man on the cross in the middle? Don't you wait. Give your heart. 